You know, I, th- I think that one of the most difficult things about suffering is that it provokes all kinds of really difficult questions. It's not just the suffering itself, as difficult as that can be, but it's the way that it really rocks and shakes the foundation of how do you know what you know. So many of you all are in freshman seminar, or you've been in freshman seminar, which is ostensibly a class designed to help you think about and examine how do you know what you know. Is it just your background? Is it because you've, you know, heard things this way and you've never considered another perspective? And that's a helpful thing in college. Um, but I think trials have a particularly poignant way of raising that question. How do I know what I know? It's one thing to say, well, I know that God loves me. It's another thing to say, I know God loves me when all the evidence in my life is against it. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. Does justification, what he's talked about, being made beautiful in God's sight and being brought into a relationship with him, does it have any power to transform our experience of suffering? How do I know, in other words, how do I know if God really likes me if my life is full of suffering and disappointment? Now, what's interesting is Christians in different eras and in different cultures have often thought differently about that question than modern Westerners, which again provokes the question, well, how do you know? How do you know? Especially when other Christians think about this differently. Modern Western Christians tend to think, if there's suffering in my life, then I'm not sure that God really likes me. And all I can tell you is Christians in other cultures and in other eras did not have that knee-jerk reaction and that assumption. But how do we know they were right? Maybe they were just not right, and now we've finally figured it out. How do we know? Well, we need to go to the Bible and hear what God has to say about that. And that's where we get to here in Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. What does God have to say about this issue? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this portion of your word. We pray that you would give us insight, but even more, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus and his goodness and his grace and his beauty and that our hearts would burn for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great little passage. I love this passage. In some ways, when you're reading through this this letter of Romans and you get to this passage, it, it seems sort of like a left turn because it seems that Paul is building this intense theological argument and theologians just love to stay in the realm of the theological. And all of a sudden Paul says, wait a second, let's get our heads out of the clouds. What does it mean in suffering? What does all this stuff matter, really, down where we live in suffering? And it does matter. And you see the way he links these ideas together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and you remember I've made, I've made the point several times, and I'll make it again. Whenever the Greek uh, uses that, that phrase, through faith, in the English, when it says through faith, it's possible for you to understand that to mean because of your faith or by means of your faith. And in the Greek, there's two different ways of saying those two different things. And so Paul is not saying that because of your faith, like your faith is your part that you brought to the, to the deal, God sent Jesus to die, and then you combined it with your faith, and somehow the conglomeration made for salvation. The Bible never says that. And it's absolutely clear in the, in the, in the Bible in the Greek. Though the English, you might read it that way. No, he's saying we have peace Not because of anything we did. And that's clear through this passage. It's while we were God's enemies, while we were the ungodly, or as the King James says, God, Christ died for the wicked. That's one of the most remarkable four words that you can have. Is that right? Christ died for, no, five, right? I mean, that's just a remarkable phrase. That Christ died for the ungodly or for the wicked. And it wasn't because we wanted him to. God takes the initiative. God does all the work. Therefore, we can have peace. It's the only basis upon which you can actually have real, solid, lasting peace. There is, I guess I would say, a somewhat spurious religion that goes by the name of Christianity that says God basically loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life and you have to accept him into heart, your heart and pray this prayer and when you do that, then something that you did magically makes God like you. And, and, and yet the, the problem with this sort of way of conceiving of salvation is how do you know if you really meant it? This is, this is where I was in ninth grade. I heard that I was a sinner, and I needed Jesus in my heart, and I was supposed to pray, and I prayed every night for a week, and I wondered, did I really mean it? And the longer I thought about it, the more I concluded that, no, I didn't really mean it, so I tried again, and I tried to really mean it this time. Here's the problem. If Christ and what he does plus you equals salvation, if that's the equation, then then that answer, salvation, is a constant variable. Because you're a variable. And if you add a variable to Christ's work, you inevitably get 
a variable. It doesn't work any other way. The only way you can have real peace is if Christ does everything. And that's what the Bible says. We can have peace with God. He's not just talking about peaceful, easy feelings here. He's talking about an objective reality. We were God's enemies. Whether you felt like it or not doesn't matter. You were God's enemies. But now, because of something Christ has done, we have peace. Peace with God. And not only that, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's a great phrase. It means that grace isn't just how you enter into a relationship with God. Grace is the whole ball game, beginning to end. If you're in relationship with God, it's because you've been granted access through faith to stand in grace. You stand in grace. It's the, it's the only word that really is applicable to describe a Christian's relationship with God, standing in grace. And we have security because of that. We've been made God's friends. We were God's enemies, this passage says, but we've been made into his friends. Access into this grace, in the, idea, in the Greek, it's this idea of being brought into a relationship with a great and powerful person. Access, being granted access where you had no ability no ability to make that introduction. No ability to, to build or to make that relationship happen. But you've been granted it. Granted is the word gifted. That's why it says in Acts that it, the Gentiles have been granted repentance unto life. Did you know that repentance is also a gift? That's what the book of Acts tells us. This has been granted unto you access to stand by grace. Our whole relationship is a relationship where we have continual access. And here's what's a shame. In so many sort of evangelical Christian uh, circles, so much emphasis is placed on whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die. And salvation is basically reduced to securing that one little issue that's really not a little issue, I know. But, it, but, it, but, this, but here, what's being, what's being said here is you don't just go to heaven when you die. Right now, you've been granted access. If all you care about is a get-out-of-hell-free card, you'll never care about this access that you've been given. And I think so many Christians are living and enjoying so much less than God has for them because all they really care about is making sure that they're covered when they die and when what God wants to give them is access. And this is the storyline of the whole Bible. God created Adam and Eve to be with him. He walked with them in the cool of the day. It doesn't just say that God looked down on them and made sure that they were towing the line and then he went back to his business. No, God made them so that he could walk with them in the cool of the day. And one day he came to walk with them as was his custom and they weren't there. They were hiding. And ever since then, ever since sin entered the world, God has been preparing a way for his people to enjoy access with him. To walk with him in the cool of the day. It's what the tabernacle was teaching us. It's what the temple was teaching us. It's what Jesus said he came to be about. He is the way. He is the gate. 
destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it because he said that I am the temple. I am the access. The book of Hebrews says that he has opened uh, by, his, by his sacrifice a new and a living way so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find help there in our time of need, right? All these things. Do you understand? The point of the Bible is not just for you to be saved. The point of the Bible is for you to have access to enjoy relationship with God. And the Bible says we have that. It's been secured by what Jesus has done. Wow. And yet I think we so often settle for sporadic access. We want to know that we have the ability to go to God if we really need him, but we don't enjoy it as a regular experience. John Stott, great Christian man. You may not know him, but uh, he's, he's a great man. Um, he's actually in a nursing home now, but um, he's one of Tim Keller's big heroes. So if you know Tim Keller or like any of his stuff, um, Stott was a big hero of his. But Stott said this one time, Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, is not sporadic but continuous, not precarious but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like the courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign or the politicians with the public. Isn't that good to know that you don't have to keep it up to continue to have access? The way has been secured by what God did through Jesus. It'd be like, you know, uh, know, there was this time when I was thinking about asking out Wendy Morgan and, and trying to get my nerve up to do that and thinking, man, I don't know if she'd go out with me, but man, wouldn't that be awesome if she would? And, um, and then I did take her out, and I took her out a couple times in, in the space of a few days. And then I sat her down, and I told her that I wanted to pursue her until she told me to stop. And to my great surprise, she said, that would be okay. Now, what would it have been like if I never called her up again? Right? I'd been dreaming about for months about would she go out with me? I finally tell her that's what I want to do. She says, okay, you can do that. And then I'm going to never call her up again. It's ludicrous, right? Everything in your heart is saying you were made not just to have the salvation issue settled so that you never think about it again. No, you were made to enjoy access. Do you enjoy it? Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Now, I don't mean do you read your Bible so that you sort of feel like God likes you now. I mean, do you read your Bible because you know that God loves you and you want to read about it? Because you know that you find it so difficult to believe that his love is real and solid and as good as he says it is. Do you pray and do you read the Bible, not just so that you can check it off your list and because it's a Christian discipline? See, in the Reformed um, tradition, we don't talk so much about spiritual disciplines. 
we talk about means of grace. That the way God communicates his grace to you, the way he gets it into your heart, is generally through the Bible, the sacraments, and prayer. And we don't do these things just so that we can get more and more disciplined. So I think some Christians want to get so disciplined that they don't really need God anymore at all. We don't think, pursue it that way. We pursue it as I'm a desperate man or woman who desperately needs to taste the grace and the goodness of God. And the only place I'm going to find that is in the word, the sacraments, and prayer. You have access. Are you enjoying it? The other thing that he says here is that we have new goals. So we get peace with God. We get access. But we also get new goals and hope. Because now we will share in the revealing of God's glory. This is the end of, chapter, of verse 2. Um, we've been get, granted this peace through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. And then the next sentence, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christians are people who've been given this wonderful gift of being able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what in the world does that mean? The first thing I should tell you is, Hope is one of these words, when you come to the Bible, you need to let the Bible define it. And what the Bible means by hope is not wishful thinking. Um, faith is not just sort of an ability to be optimistic no matter what's going on. Like a lot of people think. Well, there's some people that just have a certain temperament um, that allows them to sort of be gullible, or if you're less cynical, to you know, be cheerily optimistic even when things are difficult. Um, that's not faith. Faith in the Bible is taking possession by anticipation. The promises of God are as good as done. That's why later in chapter 8, when we get to Romans chapter 8, Paul will talk about how Christians are those who are glorified, and he'll use the past tense. And you know what? We're not glorified yet. But Paul can use the past tense because if God has promised it, you might as well think of it as already done because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He will complete the good work he began, Paul says. And he's so confident of that that he can say that it's already done in one, in one regard. Uh, that's what's going on here. Hope, hope has no degree in the Bible's way of thinking. Hope is confidence. It's not wishful thinking. Hope is joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. You see, we know that one day God's glory will be revealed. How do we know that? Because he says it. And his word is our epistemology. His word is reality. And when we come to his word, we have to bring everything and lay it before him and have his word shape our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. God's glory will be revealed. Not only that, you will be part of that glory revealed. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we gaze upon, upon Jesus, as we gaze upon Jesus, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and that's going to continue until he comes back again or calls us home. So God's glory is going to be revealed, and your glory is going to be fully consummated. All of this is going to happen. And we're taught to pray for it to happen, for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we know, we don't just hope in the sense that, 
that sort of people in our culture mean when they hope, like, oh, I really hope it's going to happen. No, we hope, in other words, we know it's happening and it changes the way we live now. That day drives the way we live this day. And, and Paul uses this word rejoice because he doesn't want you just to think about, okay, well, I know one day glory will come, and that's great, and I should sort of stick that in my back pocket, and it could come in really useful when I'm having a bad day just to kind of pull that out and remember it. So that's good. I'm glad for that. No, Paul says that we rejoice in it. What does that mean? That means that we are to take this idea and we are to taste it and enjoy it. The Bible is not at all afraid of experiential language when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's one thing to say, I know that glory will come one day. It's another thing to say, I rejoice in it. In other words, even now, I praise God and I thank him for what's coming. And in doing that, I even begin to enjoy it now. That in praising something, there's already the beginning of enjoying it. In other words, I've heard Tim Keller put it this way, that you don't really fully enjoy something until you praise it. And think about things that you really love, be it great music. It's one thing to listen to great music, but the enjoyment isn't even really as complete as it can be until you share it with somebody else and tell them why it's so great and turn somebody else on to this band or this piece of music or whatnot. That the praise completes the joy. And we are to rejoice now in this hope. Rejoice now right? This is to be the constant thing that we think about. Um, There's this guy, Richard Baxter. He's a Puritan guy. I know the Puritans get a bad rap. Maybe we'll do a convo on the Puritans one of these days and talk about this. But Richard Baxter, um, he was just a mess of a guy, okay? Can I tell you this? Um, As far as like physical ailments, he had terrible um, kidney stones and gallstones. There was one point where um, he was going to meet with some fellow pastors and talk to them about how he did pastoral visitation. He and his one ministerial assistant visited something like 2,000 families in their town that were all at their church, and they visited them personally like every year, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. And he wrote, I have this book book he wrote at home of, of a million words. He wrote a book of a million words with a quill pen while he was mostly in jail, and he had a Bible. It's called the Christian Directory, and the table of contents is 18 pages long, right? And basically describing, telling Christians how to mortify every sin, how to perform all duty. I mean, it basically pulls together everything you could ever want to know. Tim Keller called it the greatest manual on biblical counseling ever produced, and he wrote it in a year. A million words with just his Bible, right? Ridiculous. At one point, he was going to meet with these pastors, and then he, started, he coughed up like a gallon of blood, um, and he thought he was going to die, and so he decided to meditate on heaven. And um, he ended up writing a book, I think it's like seven or 800 pages, called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. He actually wrote one of the first gospel tracts, you know, tracts like those little pamphlets, except his was 250 pages long, <laughs> called A Call to the Unconverted. Anyway, um, really, you know, that's how the Puritans did things in those days, right? <laughs> but, um, but he, you know, he was asked one time, how was he able to accomplish all this stuff? And he said basically, you know, that he meditated on heaven an hour a day. And if you want to know something about what that means, it doesn't mean he emptied his mind. It means that he got the truth into his mind, into his heart. And and then, you know, the Puritans had this wonderful image for what meditation was. They talked about it like chewing the cud. 
Any of you guys farmers or know about how cows, you know, they eat the grass and then they spit it back up and chew it again to get every last little nutrient out of it? That's what the Puritans, that was their image for, for meditating. That you want to get, you just don't want to let go of this truth that, I've, that, that we've been now granted peace with God until I get every morsel and every bit of enjoyment out of that. And that's what he would do. And he said it, it, it transformed him. Rejoicing hope. Do you know what it means to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Do you know why we sing so many hymns about heaven? One of the reasons is because I feel like in a lot of ways, you guys are the recipients of a generation that thought they could find heaven on earth and had their hopes utterly dashed. And, and what you inherited was sort of not much hope at all. And it's good for us to whet our appetites, even if our hopes are going to be disappointed. I don't think we believe that. I think that we often feel like the safest way to keep our heart from being disappointed is to not hope. Whether it's relationships, my life's goals, my dreams, or even God. But the Bible says we're to rejoice in the hope. The solid, confident hope what's coming. All right. Well, how does, how does justification transform suffering? And here we get to verse 3. Now, you might say, okay, that's all great. And that stuff is all great, isn't it? But what about suffering? What about suffering? It's an excellent question. Notice that Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. He does not say we rejoice because of our sufferings or we rejoice for our sufferings. And I think over the years, some Christians have gotten that a little screwed up. They've sort of, you know, almost thought that, that suffering is a good in itself. It's not. But it is a way to meet Jesus like no other. Let me explain what I mean. We're to rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because they are changing us. And God is using them to make us more like Christ, who is the man of sorrows and the man of hope. See, a Christian who's learned to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God understands that suffering is not the worst thing you can experience. Missing out on the glory of God is far worse. And often, often, suffering is the doorway into tasting the glory of God because it's the way that you begin to really understand what the cross and what Jesus' love cost him. I'll explain that more as we get into this. See, Christianity is not masochism. The more suffering, the better I'll be. And let me go out and find more suffering. Let me be really, really obnoxious um, so that everybody hates me, and then I can go around and feel like I'm a good Christian because everybody hates me. No, actually the Bible addresses that and say, if you're suffering, make sure it's not because you're a butthole. doesn't say it exactly that way, but that's what First Peter says. It's, it does. He basically says that. Make sure it's, it's not because you're doing you know, stuff that is going to get people upset. You know, um, Suffering is not something that you go out and look for, right? But neither is the Christian view on suffering that it should be avoided at all costs. Why? Because trials have a way of focusing us, focusing us and making us like Christ. 
But it's absolutely vital that justification be the way we're processing our trials. In other, in other words, Paul is, there's a link here. Justification through faith, so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance. Now, this word perseverance is probably better translated um, focus. Focus. Suffering produces focus. Trials have a way, whether you believe in God or not, in getting your attention and focusing your attention. You might have all these different things that you're doing. You might have all these things you're involved in, all these hopes, all these dreams. But when real suffering comes, there's focus. Focus comes into your life. Some ways, more focus than you want. Sometimes you really wish that it wasn't focusing in you and you could just sort of leave it and go somewhere else. And part of the trial and the suffering is that it's bringing too much focus. But that's what trials do. What Paul says is the trial should have a particular kind of focus for those who've been given peace with God. See, here's the thing. Paul is saying that not only do we get joy in the gospel of justification, this peace, but we also, this joy stays joy in the midst of suffering and even increases. I I remember... uh, we made our first CD of this RUF music. We called it Indelible Grace about 10 years ago. And I remember um, I was going to go speak at Covenant Seminary. We went to seminary. And they, this, this girl wrote me a letter. Sarah was her name. And I'd been in seminary with her. And we'd been friends. And I remember her telling me that somebody had given her that first CD. And she wanted to write me and tell me about it. I wish I, I was looking all over for the letter today and I couldn't find it. Um, but I'll paraphrase it for you. Basically, after I graduated from seminary and I moved down to Nashville, um, I think she stayed up in St. Louis. And a couple years after she was finished with seminary, she was diagnosed with this rare blood disorder. And she basically went from feeling fine to within a couple days she was in a hospital and they were literally draining every bit of her blood and replacing it. And she said she would just sit there for hours watching her blood go out of her body and new blood come into her body. And it was at that point that somebody gave her this CD of all these hymns. And she talked about how it became a place of communion for her, that hospital room, as she meditated on the blood of Jesus, as she watched her blood go out and new blood come in. And there's something about that suffering that gave her a taste of the blood of Christ that nothing else could. Listen, you know, it's one thing to be getting ready to graduate and freaking out because you don't have any prospects for marriage. But you know what? It's another thing to be 33 years old, 32 years old, and still not married. I don't want to make light of loneliness at any stage in life. I really don't. But I do want to say that somebody who's in their 30s and is still single can commune with Jesus and find something about, find an emotional connection with what his love really cost him. Because Jesus experienced loneliness 
in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. And I would say that a 21-year-old doesn't understand it quite the way that a 33-year-old understands it. Now, you might say, gosh, who would want to be single till they're in their 30s? But all I could tell you is there's a way of tasting something about the loneliness of Jesus that you can't get when you're 20. Some of you have suffered grievous betrayal from people you thought were your friends. But what I'm telling you is there's ways that you can understand what Jesus suffered when he was betrayed by his friends that your other friends don't get and may never get. And you may think, well, I'd trade it all if I, wasn't, if I didn't have to be betrayed. And I would say then you would be a fool. Because what you need to know is the love of Jesus and what it really meant. And if you run from suffering, if you sort of arrange your life in a way that you insulate yourself from ever feeling it or experiencing it, and when it does come, if you just try to fill your life with all these distractions so that you never have to embrace it or deal with it, you're missing out on one of the most powerful ways that you'll ever connect with Jesus. Suffering, you see, does not automatically make us stronger. It's one of the stupidest things I hear people say all the time. You know, Trials, if they don't kill you, they'll make you stronger. Not necessarily. They may make you old and bitter and hopeless. I had a friend of mine named Alex, brilliant alto sax player at Berkeley, one of the, one of the best at the school when I was there, who decided that to authentically play jazz, he needed to go live as a homeless person for a year. And he came back a shell of a man. Suffering does not automatically make you better. It may destroy you. And Paul does not say, out of the blue, we rejoice in sufferings because suffering is great. No, it's because we have peace with God that suffering means something totally different. See, without justification, without knowing that peace with God is settled by what God did... When suffering comes, you either generally hate yourself because you feel, I must have failed. I didn't do what I needed to do to secure God's blessing, or I, you know, screwed up. The reason I'm suffering is because of something I did. And you torture yourself that way. Or when suffering comes, you hate God because you look at your life and say, I did everything I was supposed to do. And he did not come through for me. So either you look at yourself as having failed or you look at God as having failed. But either way, if you don't understand that you have peace with God and that he's your friend, not because of what you've done or what you haven't done, but because of what Jesus did in your place, then suffering suffering will make you mad at somebody. The only way that it will make your heart more tender and long for his kingdom to come for his glory, and not just for your comfort, is if justification is rooted solidly in your heart. And when suffering comes, you process it through justification. You know, strange as it may seem, some people actually actually feel justified for suffering. Do you know this? Some people feel a need to be punished because they don't realize that Jesus was punished in their place and that was enough. And so their guilty feelings and their shame, they, they basically feel better 
when they're suffering. And they feel more self-righteous often than those who have lived easy lives. And so the suffering, if justification is not at your core, suffering can take you all kinds of really dark places. I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to jump down here. What, what's interesting, I, I love this quote by Keller. I'm on the back of this outline if you're, if you're trying, to, trying to find it here. Notice the order of this, these chains. Suffering produces perseverance, focus, single-mindedness. Character is the confidence that comes from having been through something. Maybe it's the idea of being battle-tested. In other words, like when Wendy and I were going to have our second child, Isaac, we knew that it would mean not a lot of sleep for a long time. But we didn't face it with the same fear and trepidation that we faced our first child. Because we knew Okay, we survived. <laughs> There's something you can't you can't have you can't just read about that in baby books, no matter how many you buy. You have to just sort of know, okay, I can live on four hours of sleep for months. <laughs> you can. You can. It's not great, <laughs> but you can do it, right? And you know that going in the next time. And there's something about that. Trials have a way when you process them through justification. Of, of making you battle-tested. And um, I, I think that that's, that's really helped me. Um, here, here's, here's what I think um, is really helpful for us to, to think about is, is the way that worship is vital to this whole process. There is this word, rejoice, that comes several times in this little paragraph or two paragraphs that we've read. And here's the thing. I think a lot of people wouldn't see this connection because they generally don't think about worship as being a place where reality is dealt with. For so many people, worship is the time when you get away from reality, right? I don't know if you've ever been at a worship service where somebody at the beginning prayed, Lord, help us just leave all those distractions at the door and just worship you and just focus on you right now. Please, if you're ever leading worship, don't do that. It's deeply unbiblical, and it's actually harmful. To make people feel like the trials and the issues of life have no place before the face of God, oh my gosh, Lord have mercy, right? Worship is the place before the presence and the face of God where your head and your heart need to be oriented to reality. And here's the thing. Faith is not closing your eyes to reality like some people may think. Faith is seeing more. Faith is saying, yes, these trials are real. But God and his love and the peace that he secured for me is more ultimate. See, the Christian view is not to say, well, the trials aren't really trials because I know God loves me. No, the trials are real, but they're not ultimate. They're real, but they're not ultimate. What's ultimate is we have peace with God. We've been granted access into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. And he keeps saying, rejoice, rejoice. That's worship. Paul's saying, you can't get this by just thinking about it. You actually have to go beyond thinking about it. And you actually have to praise God for trials that bring focus, that drive you to Jesus. And that open a doorway for you to commune with him that you could never have any other way. You have to turn this stuff into 
praise. Sometimes by an act of sheer will. Sometimes by that most biblical of all prayers, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That hymn was very fitting for this. Because this is hard stuff, hard to believe. Paul tells us to rejoice. But, but here's the thing, you know, there's an objective and a subjective thing that he promises here. Look at this. Do you see this? It's fabulous. The objective, or the subjective first, God pours out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. That's, an obje- that's a subjective, mystical experience. And it happens in the context, in the crucible of suffering. Not only that, not only that, there's an objective peace, objective, secured by justification, by faith, rather than justification by work. So, in worship, we bring together what we know to be true and, and this subjective experience. And it's through rejoicing and through worship that all these dots get connected. Worship is about experience and truth together. This is why we sing hymns. I know some people think that those are weird, but it's because we want worship to be a celebrating of the objective truth of what God has done that's getting into your heart and getting into the deep places in your heart. A couple concluding applications. In our suffering, we have a doorway to commune with Christ in his sufferings by faith, because we get a chance to actually feel just a little bit of what it cost Christ to love us. Do you understand that Jesus did not have to come and live among us and have his heart broken every moment as he looked at this world that he'd made beautiful and saw how twisted it had become? Jesus did not need to endure that. He could have rightfully washed his hands of the whole thing and called down fire from heaven and said, enough of this. If this is what people are going to do with this beautiful creation that I have made, then I've had it. And he would have had every right to do that. Do you understand that the longer Jesus lived on this earth, the more and more intense his suffering became? That his suffering on behalf of sin did not begin at the cross, began with the incarnation. He suffered his whole life, and it was all because of his love. And it was love that kept him here, just as it was love that kept him on that cross. And if for you the idea of God's love is abstract and you don't know how to emotionally connect to it, well then think of it this way. What would you do anything to avoid? Maybe it's some suffering that you've experienced. Maybe it's some suffering you're experiencing now, and you would say, you know what, I would do anything. I would do anything to not sit at home on Friday night and have nobody call me. And there's a lot of things you could do to rectify that situation. Places you could go, people you could hang out with that wouldn't necessarily be very helpful to you. But if you get to the point where you say, anything is better than being lonely on a Friday night, well, you can can get yourself in a real mess, right? But what you need to do is sit there and say, you know what? Jesus experienced loneliness like I can't even imagine. And so rather than run away from him and his ways, because I would do anything to avoid this suffering or to end this suffering, why don't I sit and I meditate on the love of God 
and use this loneliness as a doorway into understanding that the cross was not just about nails. It was also about betrayal, looking upon people that he made that should be worshiping him, and instead they're screaming, crucify him. And that broke his heart. It was about thinking about, where are all my friends? Everything that you suffer, everything that you are willing to say, I would give this, I would give up God if I could be done with this. Well, you see, Jesus had that opportunity presented to him as well. He had the opportunity time and time again to say, I will give up God and his plan if it means I don't have to go to this cross, if it means I can avoid this suffering. And when he was faced with that choice, and his blood, it said, were like, you know, his sweat was like drops of blood in that garden, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? There's a great uh, poem written by a man after World War I, Edward, Edward Shilito, called Jesus of the Scars. This is part of it. It's worth looking up the whole poem. But he, said, he says this, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thine alone. Listen, don't let people tell you that every religion is just the same. Such nonsense. The last words of the Buddha, never cease striving. The last words of Jesus, it is finished. They couldn't be more different. Couldn't be more different. The Buddha looks out on a world of brokenness and he smiles. Says, rise above it. Jesus looks on a world of suffering and he weeps. And he goes to a cross. Second concluding application. God does battle against our unbelief by demonstrating his love for the ungodly at the cross. Listen, back to that issue of epistemology. How do you know God loves you when suffering comes? And Paul's answer, God demonstrated his love in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The proof that God loves you is that Jesus went to a cross and he stayed there until he could say, it is finished. And I want to close with a story that I think grabs hold of this, and then we're going to sing this hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. There's a line in there when we get to it that uh, the way we tend to sing it is, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Let me tell you the story. You guys can come up if you want. Um, get ready as I'll tell this story. Um, George Matheson was a brilliant preacher in the 1800s in uh, Scotland, but as a seminary student, he began to go blind. The girl that he was engaged to decided that she didn't want to be married to a blind man, so she left him. He never did marry, but his sister lived with him, and um, he was pastoring a church, and his sister lived there at the house and helped manage the household. But on the day that he wrote this hymn, it was the day of his sister's wedding. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think about um, what must have been going through his mind. He said in his diary that he stayed behind while the whole rest of the family went to the wedding. And as he wrestled with God, he said this hymn came to him in a matter of about 15 minutes. He wrote over 200 other hymns, but none of them, he said, came to him like they were dictated to him. 
Except when he originally wrote this, he actually wrote, I climb the rainbow through the rain. And the imagery there is very important. In the Hebrew, uh, in that story in Genesis, you know where the rainbow kind of story comes from? And my wife's like, you should write that double rainbow guy and tell him what it does mean. Because you don't have to wonder if you read the Bible what the rainbow means, right? The rainbow means that God has said, I will not destroy the world by flood again. And the sign that promises that is a battle bow cocked and aimed at God himself. The rainbow, it's not, it doesn't say rainbow in the Hebrew. It simply says bow, and it's the word for a battle bow. And the picture is a battle bow that's cocked and aimed at God, not us. And at the cross, that promise was made and kept when God loosed that battle bow. It was fired, but not at us, at God himself, as Jesus on the cross takes the curse that we deserve. Therefore... When trials come, you don't have to wonder if you're a Christian, does God hate me? You know the answer to that. The answer is no, because the battle bow has been loosed on Jesus, and he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. And if you don't understand that, you see every trial is a double trial. It's not just a trial, but it's also making you wonder whether God loves you. But what Matheson says is, when trials come, I climb that rainbow. I grab hold of that covenant promise, and I grab it, and I climb it. And then he rejoices in hope. That morn shall tearless be. There's a morn, a day coming when your tears will be wiped away by the one who cried tears like you can't even imagine for his love for you. Let's pray.